just so you guys know, we have a number of questions that uh, have been uh, given to us online and through different formats, and also we'll take questions as you text them. But I'm going to go ahead and try to go through them uh, just succinctly and in order, and then, like I said, if anything kind of sparks like we just did, you can go ahead and text that number, and we'll add that to the list. So most missionaries are always asked this question. How many different countries have you been to, lived in, and what is the weirdest food you've ever tried? It was was one of those things where the Bible school student was so proud. She had worked in the kitchen for a long time, and it was a very honorific thing for us to receive this food. And you look at it, and you just think, oh, my goodness, how am I going to get that down? You know? (laughs) It looked like, um, I even feel kind of sad even saying it this way. I don't mean it as a mockery. I really... Um, respect the people and love the people who made it for us, but it looked like um, a dead jellyfish wow. on my plate. And uh, but I got it down, and they were watching. <laughs> I got it down. So yes, and it didn't taste terrible. It was just a real rubbery, slimy structure. Yeah, I was the honored guest at a meal in Kazakhstan, and the person that was serving the meal was a, a Muslim convert. His name is Timur. And he was a businessman. And so in Kazakhstan, when you're the honored guest, uh, they will bring out, and you're not told you're the honored guest before you come, you find out when you're there. And so as we were sitting there, all of a sudden, Timur comes out and he has uh, a lamb's head on a plate. And all the wool is off of it and it's been boiled. And so he sets it right down in front of me. And the thing that stood out to me was that it had a cross cut down from above its eyebrows down its nose and then a, uh, another cut across here. So it made this cross. And that just jumped out at me. And I said, Timur, what, what's going on here? What, why is this? I knew I was the honored guest as soon as they served the lamb's head to me. I said, but what's the meaning of the cross on this? Because it had come from a Muslim butcher. And the church actually moved into that part of the world from... Uh, the Middle East at about the 8th century. So there were called Nestorian missionaries that made their way along the Silk Roads going east. And they proclaimed the gospel along the way. As a matter of fact, business as mission is real popular now. But the Nestorian missionaries were doing business as mission in the 8th century. Mm. And so when they shared that Jesus was the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world, these butchers realized that the real honored guest at any meal was really Jesus Christ. And so whenever they would cut off a lamb's head to prepare it for a person who's going to purchase it to serve it to someone as the honored guest, they always put the cross on it so that everybody would remember that Jesus is really the ultimate honored guest at the meal as the Lamb of God. And so these Muslim butchers today still do that because Islam came in and really came against the church in a strong way like in the 12th century and so they still do that, but they don't know why. Wow. So, um, Kind of going back to the outfits we were talking about, what qualities would draw a woman to, or draw a man to a woman with these stricter laws? And even on top of that, does he get a sneak peek of the face before the arrangement is put together? Or is it like, hey, spin the wheel, man, you get what you get? <laughs> Marriages are arranged, and um, indeed... There are companions who are married who never see each other before the wedding. So we've known of people who have seen their spouse's face the first time when they pass a mirror 
under the girl's veil. And when the bride and groom, at the beginning of the wedding celebrations, they're both going to be under kind of a veil piece. It's the people that, that hold over them. And so the guy and the girl are meeting each other for the first time and seeing each other faces for the first time. But as you might well imagine, with globalization and everything that's happening, um, there's, there's a lot of change in that area. Marriages are still, honorable marriages are still arranged in many parts of the world. India, Hindus do it too, Muslims. Um, but nowadays, um, I mean, parents, parents do the arranging and, um, and, and they, and, and they, you know, they find suitable families. I had a, a young girl who told me one time, well, you know, sure my mom's going to arrange my marriage. I mean, she loves me more than anybody. She knows me more than anybody. She's going to pick somebody really nice for me. Um, ironically, she's been married twice. So, um, and divorced. Like she, she married into, she married and then was um, abused and uh, is now not married. So, but, but a lot of times what parents will let their, their, you know, the prospective mates do is they will, well, they'll bring them to the house and let them meet them with the rest of the family. And in that case, typically they do that and the parents of the groom will be checking out the girl for their son. And then later on, they'll bring the groom in maybe to meet the girl too. And then some families are quite progressive that they would even allow their, um, the pr prospective mates to go on a date, but always chaperoned, like to go out and visit together, but always chaperoned. It's, it's anathema that a girl should even touch a boy or boys and girls even look each other in the eye technically, technically, right? Because times are changing. But according to the Quran, before you're married, you should not be having eye contact or physical contact at all with anyone from the opposite gender. Is When is divorce acceptable for a woman in that culture? Uh, a woman can only get a divorce if it's part of the marriage contract. Oh, so ahead of time, there's a little out that they yes. write in it? Yeah. So, yeah, marriages are not like they are here. It's not a religious ceremony. It's a contractual ceremony. And it is overseen by the imam. That's the, you know, the leader of the mosque. But... Um, that it, it can be written into the in, into that marriage ceremony. You know, if she needs to divorce him, these are what the, you know, this is what she'll get, this is what he'll get kind of a thing. A man can divorce a woman by simply telling her she's divorced. Even over a period of time, if he says, I divorce you, and maybe he changes his mind for a little time and then comes back and he says, I divorce you again, he's really mad at her. And then maybe a few weeks later, it's, I divorce you again. She's really divorced then after three. All he does is say it. If a woman wants to divorce a man, she has to do it with his permission. So it's, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's rough. So this girl that I told you about who has divorced twice, um, I don't really know how that worked, but um, she was successful both times. At one point, she was in some danger, but, and these are, these are upper, upper class families in Pakistan, right? But, but then, you know, every, everything's good now, and she's doing really well. She has one son from her second marriage, and, um, and ironically, the, the dad doesn't even want that son. So usually in, an, in Islam, when a man marries a girl, if anything happens in the relationship, he's the owner of the kids. Like, he gets the kids. He'll get the kids as soon as they're weaned, or, you know, or able to be away from mom if there's a situation of a divorce. Um, uh, and a Muslim man can marry a Christian woman but, you know, that's, that's one of the things that Christian women need to know. You, mar you know, you marry a Muslim man, if you have children, they're not yours. 
like at the end of the day, you're, they're going to be raised as Muslims. And if something happens, you're in trouble. Wow. Uh, so at what point did you know you wanted to go into ministry slash missions? Uh, and even in addition to that, how did you know it was Muslim people that God was specifically calling you to? So maybe for each of you. Well, I came to the Lord just before my 16th birthday, and I was planning on becoming a dentist. I always find dentistry fascinating, still do. And so I was planning on going to Ohio State and becoming a dentist, and I came to faith. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, and about a month later, I, I sensed that the Lord was calling me into ministry. And I wasn't sure what kind of ministry, but I felt like I was supposed to go into ministry. And so my youth pastor and his wife had gone to evangel, then college, but university. Um, I had a soccer scholarship, actually, to Southern California College, or now Vanguard University. They showed me the school. Ended up going there to evangel, uh, which had no soccer program. But, um, but I felt like I was supposed to go there. And I went through the bachelor's degree program. I got a degree in biblical studies or theology, if we call it that. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do um, I knew I was called to ministry, and then I went on and got my Master of Divinity at seminary, and when I was in seminary, I was in, sitting in a cultural anthropology class, and the professor played a tape by a guy that was pastoring in Chicago by the name of Dr. Ray Bakke, and God used that tape to call me to Chicago, and I'd never been to Chicago before, but I just, through that tape, I just had this witness in my spirit, I supposed to come to Chicago. And then uh, Linda and I started dating, and she went and taught school. Uh, then she, when I graduated from seminary, I got a position on staff at a church in Dayton, Ohio. She came and she taught school in Dayton. And my qualifying question to her before I married her was, do you think you could make it in Chicago? Because the only doors that opened uh, for me to come to Chicago was in an all-black church on the south side, in the heart of the south side. A very violent neighborhood, uh, West Englewood, Auburn Gresham neighborhood. And so uh, she said, sure, because she grew up in the Dominican Republic. Uh, she felt like, you know, I've grown up. I've been the only white pea in the pod. You're the one who grew up in the upper middle class suburbs. And you're the one that's going to have the, the great cultural shock when you get to Chicago. But I knew God had called me. And this pastor, Spencer Jones, a church of about 700 people, Assembly God Church, and the doors open and we felt led. So two weeks after we got married, right after our honeymoon, um, I was driving the U-Haul and she was following me in a Plymouth Horizon, which is a really little car in the heart of the South Side. Uh, the pastor gave us an opportunity to live in the suburbs and drive in. And I said, no, if I'm going to minister to people in the community and the church, uh, I need to live there and we need to live there. So that's what happened. So we moved in. I went on staff of the church. Linda got a job teaching Spanish at Lords High School, which, no, no, not Lords, uh, Alvernia High School, just off of Irving Park in Lawndale on the north side. And so anyway, I'll, I'll shorten this. But so we were called to urban ministry, got involved in that church. Uh, just an interesting sidebar there. Um, the people in the church were great. They accepted us. I went on staff. Everybody was black in the church, black in the neighborhood. We're the only whites there. But nobody in the neighborhood would talk to me. I mean, I walked down the street, and people would literally cross the street to the other side of the street so they wouldn't have to walk by me. And so I thought, okay, well, 
They don't like me because I'm white, <laughs> right? And so I remember the church really taught me a lot about prayer. So one morning at the church, I was praying. I said, Lord, how am I going to minister to people in this community if they won't talk to me? And he said so clearly, he said, everyone you see, go up to them, tell them your name, ask them their name, and tell them why you're there. So I did that for about a month. I mean, even if gangbangers, because it was the dividing line, racing was a dividing line then between the Blackstone Rangers and Satan's disciples. Even if they would cross over, I would cross over these gang members and say, hey, wait a minute, you guys, if you go any further, I'm going to talk to you. You know, my name's Mark. I'm a pastor at Southside Tabernacle. What's your name? You're like, okay. We wondered who the white guy was in the neighborhood, right? And so anyway, did that and... One Saturday morning in September, just a couple months after we moved in, I was crossing Racine uh, to the church from where we lived around the block to open the church up for prayer. And there's always this one older gangbanger that always wore a white fedora in front of the laundromat. And as I crossed Racine, I heard him say, psst. And so I looked over my shoulder, and there he was, and with his head, he motioned for me to come over. So I crossed back over the street, and I said, how can I help you? And this is the only thing this guy ever said to me. If he ever saw me, he just went, you know, never said a word. But it's the only thing he said to me. He said, Reverend, the word is out. If anyone messes with you or your wife, they're dead. And then he turned around and walked down the scene. And I said, thank you. <laughs> I did. And, he, and then, you know, that was it. I could go anywhere. And it was a very violent neighborhood. At any time. And people I didn't even know say, hey, Pastor Mark, what's up? You know, because it got through the neighborhood. Hey, the white guy and his wife, he's a pastor at Southside. Well, I'll close with this. The reason why nobody would talk to me, they thought I was a detective. Because they thought the only way a white guy and his white wife would move back into this neighborhood when all the white people left 30 years ago is if he had some kind of clout behind him or he's crazy. And so uh, God just gave us tremendous favor. Uh, I'll just tie in the call to mission. So anyway, we felt called to church planting. We planted a church at 59th and Central Park on the southwest side, uh, just directly east of Midway Airport on 59th Street. And our church was very focused on missions. We gave uh, 23% of our church budget went to missions. We weren't a down-and-out urban church. I always said we had white collar, blue collar, and no collar. Nice. Um, we had Hispanics. We had blacks. We actually started the Mexican Hispanic church. We planted a Puerto Rican Hispanic church. Um, you know, we had African Americans start coming, and it was a wonderful church. But we had such a focus on missions. One day, a, a missionary from Pakistan came, and he began talking about unreached cities in Pakistan, like Karachi. You know, 25 million people in one city. And the Lord used that and really got into my heart. And then I ran it by Linda. I said, you know, I thought we'd be in this church all of our lives or we would go to another Chicago neighborhood in the city and plant a church. But, you know, I believe the Lord's calling is the Pakistan. So she prayed about it because unless you're both on the same page, you better not go anywhere because <laughs> um, you're one when you're married. You're not two. And so that's how we uh, ended up going to Pakistan from there. And uh, the story of family is a whole other thing. Um, so were you called to a location or a people? 
You know, I feel called to, a, a, at that time, a country. I feel called to Pakistan. And then I prayed about what I'm going to do. I mean, I'm really good at evangelism and discipleship and church planting, but that's not what Pakistan wants. It's a fundamental Muslim country. And you can't go there as a missionary. So I started doing research. I always tell my students the Holy Spirit is in the research. Yeah. He'll guide you. And so I was doing research in a Chicago library, and I came across these articles that one out of six and one out of ten men in Pakistan was addicted to opium or heroin. And sitting at that, I was looking through microfiche, and as I was looking through that, the Holy Spirit said, that's how you'll plant my church in Pakistan, through reaching out to Muslim drug addicts. And that's exactly what happened. I went and shared it with Linda, and we began sharing that God's called us to Pakistan to start Teen Challenge. Uh, I had sent people to Teen Challenge. I had spoken in Teen Challenge, but I'd never led Teen Challenge. But anyway, the doors opened, and, and churches got behind us and gave monthly support, you know, gave offerings so we could raise our cash budget, and off we went to yeah. uh, Pakistan. And, I mean, in God's sovereignty, we didn't hide the fact that it was a Christian Jesus-centered drug rehab program, and here this fenomenal Muslim country <laughs> permits us, you know, to officially uh, register Teen Challenge as a non-government organization. Yeah. So most of you weren't in the Spanish service, but Linda was speaking in the Spanish service, and she just shared how when they went, Linda grew up in the Dominican Republic, five to how old were you? Uh, 17. So most of her primary years... Fluent in Spanish, no idea why God's calling them to Pakistan when he could be calling them to Argentina. And then you had mentioned they, they begged her to become the Spanish teacher at her kid's school. She reluctantly eventually accepts, becomes friends with the school nurse, whose husband eventually becomes friends with Mark as a doctor, and eventually climbs the ranks to becoming the secretary general of Pakistan. And he's the one that opened the door for them to start Teen Challenge. So, you know, when God calls you, you can see in your story, and I loved how you said that in the second service, from five years old, God knew where he was going to have you as a married woman and, and a mother down the line, and how he orchestrated all your steps. I love what the proverb says, before a single step was taken, God has already orchestrated all your steps. Um, so I know one of the questions was about calling. Is there a specific moment do you believe when someone is called? Is it gradual? Is it a slow revelation? Obviously, the Lord already knows the end from the beginning. Is it all different for different people? How, how would you describe the call of God on your life when it comes to ministry? Well, I think it's both and. I mean, I think he does it any way he wants, right? Um, for, for me, I had actually at one point felt the Lord tell me, I was at Evangel, and I felt the Lord tell me, Linda, that, that past of yours, you know, I'm, I was, I'm, mi corazón late como Latina, ¿verdad? Like, I'm, I, I grew up, like, Latin American, but it, but, but, so, so I was, you know, Mark said that he noticed that I always hung out with just Latinos at school. I needed to, I needed to branch out, I guess, and so the Lord actually told me at one point, Linda, you gotta, you gotta set who you were aside, you gotta, in fact, I was in the library. He said, put your old self back on that shelf mm. and, you know, and step out and trust me for what's new. And, you know, that was a really hard thing for me to do because it's like just giving away. It's like saying, okay, everything that you've made me, everything that, that, I, that I've become, like you're asking me to set it on a shelf and what? You know, but I, I grew up with, with in, in a loving national church and with, with deeply spiritual parents who raised us right. And so I knew that I could trust God in it. And marvelously, 
you know, down the road. You know, when Mark um, first told me, hey, I think he's calling us to Pakistan. Do you sense anything like that? My thought was, ah, you know, like, why not Argentina <laughs> or what? But it wasn't hard for me to say yes to the call because I'd grew, grown up a missionary kid, right? I, I loved that life. I had no regrets. And my biggest challenge was to make sure that I wasn't saying yes because it felt exciting, mm-hmm. right? So I had to make sure, God, you know, is this really is this really where you're leading us? Because I could so easily just say yes and jump right in, but I just want to know for sure, for sure, for sure that that's where you want us. And then you think, you know, you just leave the logistics, the details, and you know, to him. And, and the Lord affirms you along the path in different ways to the point where, wow, you know, I'm, here I am in Pakistan. The Spanish that I taught we should be te- speaking in another country. I was speaking in Pakistan. I was teaching, you know, school children how to speak Spanish. And in the process, I was getting paid. And, you know, missionaries, we, we couldn't in that time, we, you couldn't work. On another job and be a missionary. So all of the funds that I made at that school, not a ton, but we lived in Pakistan. And so all the funds that I made at that school had to go toward work projects. And I was happy about that because we didn't have any money to start Teen Challenge. We really didn't expect to start it until our second term in. So immediately the Lord affirms my husband and affirms me at the same time by telling me, see, I had a plan for you way back then when I asked you to lay that Spanish on a shelf. You know, it wasn't forever. Mm-hmm. And, and now at Global Initiative, what we do, I mean, even now, um, you know, we, we train bilingually. So I, I speak, uh, you know, in Latin American countries and in congregations to, um, you know, to help equip people for outreach to Muslims where, wherever they are. And the Lord's always used my Spanish always use my Spanish. I would just like to say, Pastor Joey, if you would let me, anything that the Lord has invested in your life, I mean, even if you come from a sordid background, like a tough background, and the Lord's saved you, he can use anything, and he will, and he'll use everything, or anything, or whatever he wants. He'll always use it, though. He'll redeem it. He'll restore you. He'll do whatever he needs to do, and he's going to make it good in the rest of your life. Yeah, like yeah. he's going to bring it back. He doesn't, he just doesn't waste his investments, what he does for us, even early in our lives when we're very young. So I want to encourage you, you know, to not think that you have to, oh, wow, that's really different. God's calling me. I, I got to be complete. It's all different now. It's, it's not going to be all different because you don't have, who you are doesn't change. Yeah, God good. knows you and he's calling you because he's going to equip you for the task that it the privilege, you know, we say task, come on, like the, the sacrifice is not to go if God's calling you to go, like you, you couldn't think of not going if you felt like God was calling you to do something like that, so um, that's kind of kind of how it went for me. And I think it's different for each person, like for me, um, you know, I was starting to take courses in high school to prepare me to go to Ohio State, but this, when the call came a month after I came to faith, it was like, well, I guess I'll become a youth pastor. And then when I got to college, I thought, well, I don't know. And the whole idea of preaching scared me to death. Um, and I even thought, well, maybe I'll become an archaeologist <laughs> so I would have to preach. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll become a teacher and so I won't have to preach. That really scared me. But the interesting thing was, as I went through, um, I thought uh, I had gone through a practicum in my master's degree and my practicum leader said, you, need, you should think about becoming a counseling psychologist. 
So I thought about that and I thought, well, I'm going to go to Chicago. I feel called to Chicago and I'll start an urban counseling center. But when I got then on staff at Southside Tabernacle, the black church, um, I found out the Lord had really gifted me in evangelism. And the church was so into church planting that it just moved in my heart that this is what I was supposed to do is become a church planter. So when the call comes, you just kind of move into that. You sense this inkling. It's like, I, I can't become a dentist. I can't go to Ohio State to do this. I know the Lord's called me to ministry. It, I'm not sure what that looks like. I don't think the call of God is like a puzzle with a thousand and one pieces and you dump it out and you only have enough pieces for four corners. Mm. Where are all the other pieces? Well, I don't know. But I do know that when I obey God, it seems like another piece appears and I put that piece in yeah. and all of a sudden another one appears and pretty soon, you know, the picture begins to become reality on the puzzle. So don't think about it all coming at one time and this is what I'm called to be and do and that's going to be the end all of your calling. I think stepping into the first inkling of what you sense Okay, I'm called. Now, what does that mean? How do I get myself ready? How do I prepare? Am I going to go to school? You know, I don't know. Am I supposed to do correspondence? I don't know. What can I do? I think the wonderful thing, like in a church like Belmont, um, there's a wonderful staff here. This is a wonderful church. I'm not saying this because pastors sitting here. Uh, This church has a great history. And I do think that it's a wonderful place to begin exploring and talking to people about what calling may look like for you and then discerning that with others that get to know you and then discovering what the Lord is leading you into. You know what I love about your story too is that I think sometimes we hear this term called and we think we're called to be and do one thing and you just continue to respond to the call and then the next call. So you're a church planner, you're, you're, you know, inner city, you're Pakistan, you're professors, you're starting your own organization. Like you just kept saying yes to every call that God made. And I think sometimes we think God calls you once and that's the only call you're ever going to get. And I think a lot of your stories in increments of seven, almost seven years here and then seven years there. And then, I mean, that's, that's what it is, right? Where the Lord's currency is, Pastor Phil always said, and uh, he gets to spend us how he sees fit. Now, each of you had an opportunity to say yes or no to that call. Your children didn't have that choice when you went to Pakistan. How did you raise your children? And all three of your children, they love the Lord. How did you help raise them to ensure at least that part that they love the Lord when they had no choice in living in Pakistan? You had no choice of living in the Dominican. Uh, How did you manage to do that by God's grace, I'm sure. But what practical things were you doing to help raise your kids to love the Lord? I think that the things that any parent does in the States, like here, we're taught to do our parents model for us, you know, family devotions, church, um, growing kids, uh, you know, creating a a context of of faith and learning and uh, all of those things, the ways that our parents have raised us. I mean, you do that anywhere, anywhere. Um, I think that church really matters, involving your kids in church and, uh, you know, um, when we went to Pakistan, we didn't have a church. Like, we did. We weren't allowed to go to a local Pakistan assembly. We had to go to an Anglican church at first. Well, an Anglican church, like, is almost Catholic. But that was the church that we were allowed to go to in Pakistan. And that's where we went. And ironically, that church, you know, was was hugely evangelistic, a wonderful experience for us. And our kids just grew the same way in Pakistan that they would anywhere else. Now, I look over my shoulder and I say, rats, 
my kids didn't get to do missionettes or Awana or like we didn't have um, we didn't have junior Bible quiz. And so, you know, wow, our, our kids like they could have really known the scripture like these kids that I see around here. And I think, you know, did we really miss all that stuff? And I'm sure that those things would have been good for our kids. But what our kids got by being missionary kids, the global perspective, I mean, all three of our kids have their finger on the pulse of like, you know, just global stuff. And they love people. Um, they, um, uh, they're good citizens. They're good Christians. They're good global citizens. And I think that the thing that pleases us the most is that we have asked them, and we continue to ask them at different stages in their lives, do you have any regrets like growing up, you know, far away from grandma and grandpa? Our parents are the ones who paid the price, honestly. You know, his parents, woof. I mean, they didn't get it at all. But our kids, I mean, no regrets. They say, wow, we can't imagine being raised any other place any other way. Hey, our kids suffered through some tough stuff. Our church got bombed, and my daughter's friend got killed in that bombing, and her mother. I mean, we went through some icky, icky, icky stuff, but God was with us, always with us, and, um, and he, he walked it with us, and our kids got to see him do the things that he wanted to do in their lives, um, so we have, I mean, I'm just so thankful that our kids will look us in the eye and say, no regrets, like not one, like just gratitude, we're so thankful for the way that we got to grow up. Yeah, and it'd be interesting, we would come home on furlough, and my friend became pastor at Oprah Community Church, and so... <laughs> We, we ended up living in the missionary and residence housing in Oak Brook. And I always told Linda, I said, you know what? I said, we are the white trash of Oak Brook. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, our next door neighbor was Frank Thomas of the White Sox. Oh, wow. <laughs> he really no wonder you're a Sox fan. Even, yeah, it didn't hurt. And but our uh, housing had like window unit uh, air conditioning. Yeah, but <laughs> it was great missionary residence housing. And, um, and so, yeah, I think the important thing, especially for your children, and I noticed this at Evangel. When I was going to Evangel, uh, I'm pretty, pretty observant. Uh, you know, I, I take in a lot of things visually. And I noticed that the students that were either like summa cum laude, magna cum laude, cum laude, the top of the line, they were either pastor's kids or missionary kids. And Evangel is a liberal arts university, so it's just not people of ministry. People become, you know, lawyers, doctors, sociologists, whatever. Then I noticed the people getting kicked out of the school were either pastor's kids or missionary kids. Mm. And one day in a psychology class, I asked Dr. Brock, I said, I've made this observation. Is there any truth to this or is just just something that's an anomaly that I've seen? He says, no, you've, you've picked up on something. I said, well, why is that? And so he said to the class, my experience in counseling with students have had difficulties is that when these students are having problems and and getting asked to leave the school that are pastors and missionary kids the consistent thing i find is that their parents have put the ministry ahead of their family mm. and so i remember that i mean i think i was a sophomore i was maybe 19 20 years old and i thought you know i'm never going to do that i'm always going to put my marriage first my kids first and then the church and i think that's why our kids aren't bitter against the church and ministry because they always had priority. And yeah. we had a very busy urban church. <laughs> and, I, and if I could go back and do things and do it more slowly, I would uh, in my own life. But I think it's important, you know, the, the marriage thing, strong, we don't have a perfect marriage. Nobody has a perfect marriage. 
uh, but we love each other deeply and we support each other and our kids see that and they know that and the kids feel secure in that. So whether we were in Chicago or whether we were in Pakistan or Central Asia, they had that kind of consistency in the home and I believe that's what makes the call durable for them. Yeah. And you know, they have great kids. Uh, one daughter works with Compassion Ministries. Another daughter works in the medical field. And then their son served in special forces and now lives in Europe. Um, on that kind of note, special forces and what's going on, we talked about how it was the Lord's providence that you were with us this weekend considering the the issues going on with Israel and the surrounding areas. How do we as believers approach things like that? You know, you, you see this constant movement on the streets. You got one side that are arguing about pro-Palestine and another side pro-Israel. And, you know, where do we as Christians, we were talking about like, both are going to hell if they don't know Jesus. Like at the end of the day, Israel and Palestine are both lost without Jesus. But as Christ followers, and for many of these people, as young people that are trying to navigate these waters, and, you know, I, I, I worry sometimes that not just this generation, but as a whole culture, we're driven by quick talking points and news flashes. And, you know, nobody really does the research like you do. We don't, you said microfiche, and I think... <laughs> One or two people probably know what the, you guys know what microfiche is. Anybody? There you go. The people in the back. <laughs> My forty-year-old and close to forty-year-old. Uh, it was a, a way to put reels in a machine, and it would show you a film reel of newspaper clippings. So it's a giant box. Stranger Things. They're looking at it anyway. Um, on that note, then, as believers, how do we navigate those waters? As young people, when you got friends that are, are you know almost combative on one side or the other. How do we go about that? Yeah. Well, I, th I think that it's important. I, I mentioned this morning in the sermon. I didn't really mean to mention it. But I think it's important for us to look at all people, no matter who they are. It doesn't matter about their religion, their ethnicity, their race. We have to look at them as all made in the image of God. They're the imago Dei, the image of God. And so... Um, I believe the Jewish people have a historic right to the land of Israel. I mean, it's something that came over 4,000 years ago. Um, but then the Palestinians are there too. Um, and I've had some Palestinian friends that I've been corresponding with, and they take it back, well, Israel was able to go there 70 years ago. I said, well, it really goes back farther, further than that. But I, I think in the world that we're in, it's so easy to get sucked into us versus them arguments. I think as Christ followers, we need to be communicating, you know, these are challenges in the temporary in, in, in the life that we're living in, but how do we look at all of these things from an eternal perspective? And, and all these folks equally matter to God, whether they're Palestinians or they're Israelis. It's like I mentioned in the first service today, or I don't know if you were there, but when Al-Qaeda terrorists bombed our church, I was very upset. I was very angry. I mean, like murder angry in my heart. And I was told by the Holy Spirit, I died for those terrorists. So <laughs> I had no kumbaya moment. I had had no goosebumps go over me. I felt very stoic. I said, I'd literally sat on those stairs when I was getting my luggage. Yes, Lord, you did. You know, it kind of took the wind out of my sails. I was enjoying the anger. And, um, it was kind of a high, and, and I, I, I said, yes, Lord, you did. 
And I think that's the way we have to look at it. And so as, as Christ followers, we're to be peacemakers. I think the question we have to ask ourselves, if we were pulled into the conversation, if somebody asks us, how can I answer this in a way that's not compromising, but how can I be a peacemaker in this situation? You know, how can I do justly, you know, what does it say? Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. This is from a church in Gainesville, Florida, Greenhouse Church. And, and I love this because I think it, it really says it all. This is what I'm to be when I'm out and about. And how can I be a peacemaker in these areas that are so inflamed, you know, with anger and hate? I do the same thing when I engage LBGTQ people. I don't know why it is, but I always seem to fall into that kind of crowd. And I often have incredible conversations with lesbians or transgender people or bisexual. And I don't, I don't run from that. Uh, and I don't compromise. I believe in compassion without compromise. Um, I don't believe that that is a lifestyle that is biblical. There's no way to justify any of that in scripture. But these folks, if I'm talking to a lesbian, she's the Imago Dei. If I'm talking to a gay man, he's the Imago Dei. He's made in the image of God. Now, how do I love that person with the love of Jesus and even befriend them? so that I can be an influence in their life. Because if I see them as the opposition and the enemy, just like with a Palestinian or a Jewish person, then I'm going to have no godly influence over them whatsoever. So I think we really have to approach it. How can I be a peacemaker in this situation? And I think being a good listener, uh, just being still and just listening to what they have to say. And don't be afraid to disagree. You don't have to be disagreeable. Uh, I disagree with people all the time. And sometimes they start getting angry and I'll say, look, you know, you don't have to get angry about this. I thought we were having a conversation. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. I've had this happen in Pakistan. But as Christ followers, we are countercultural people. Yeah. We, we are going to be people to confront truth. And truth is painful. You know, truth will, <laughs> you know, you know, the, the truth may set you free, but it'll piss you off in the meantime. Right? He said a bad word. He's on a roll today. It's fine. Yeah. Right. Um, on that note, um, Mark, Mark does some teaching. I think you said you're, you're getting ready to launch a new study into um, different religions. And what's the name of the study? How did you say uh, it? Well, started the Center for the Study of World Religions, so we focus in on uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and secular humanism. Okay, why those? And what's what's the? I don't know. It's a long. That's a whole seminar. What's a short way of being able to differentiate? And I think one of the issues sometimes we have when it comes to trying to have these conversations with people from any of those religions is the intimidation of I don't know enough about your religion to talk intelligently, and I'm worried that I don't know enough about my religion to combat it intelligently. So if you can kind of break that down a little bit uh, and help us understand that and, and then how to even have some of those conversations. Yes, well, I, I felt like the Lord was leading to focus in on those four areas because uh, they make up most of the world's population outside of Christianity. So we often have a lot of ignorance when it comes to understand what Buddhists believe or what Hindus believe. Uh, Lynn and I know a lot about what Muslims believe. That's probably our area of expertise. 
And another area I'm really interested in is secular humanism because it's such a, have a, having such a powerful impact upon the church and even upon Islam today. So I, I believe that the Holy Spirit led to get into those four because they make up most of the world's population and most of the immigrant populations that are coming to America, like that are on the north side. So with the other part of that, what did you say? Well, real quick on that note, can you give me just a quick synopsis of each of those? Yes. Well, Buddhism, I, I'm not an expert in Buddhism, but I will say this, that Buddhism is like, thank you, is like, is like rolling a ball of jello up a hill. I mean, you push on one side and this side slides down. Buddhism is really growing in the United States because in Buddhism, you can really believe whatever you want to believe. You can tailor it to your whole belief system. Uh, there's really not a belief in eternity. Uh, there's not a belief in the afterlife. Uh, some Buddhists, uh, depends on what kind of Buddhism is, will look at it as you may be reincarnated into something else. If you've lived a bad life, yeah, you may come back as something terrible. Or if you've lived a good life, you may come back as something better. Uh, with Hinduism, you know, 33 million gods. Uh, you can almost make anything a god. Uh, we had a language tutor when we were going to University of North Dakota for language acquisition. And so he and I played tennis every Saturday. He helped tutor us. And so we were together one day, and I said, and I think you want to engage in conversations and ask if it's a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim what they believe. And then that earns you the right to share with them what you believe. And so, but listen to them, learn from them. And I said, so tell me what, is, in essence, what is Hinduism? And we were sitting and eating lunch at a restaurant, and he said, do you see that car out there? And he happened to point his finger at my favorite car, a 57 Chevy. Um, he said, now, I could ascribe certain life values to that car. And anytime I saw that car, it would remind me of my life values. So that car would become my God. So it's ascribing value. And, and you can do it to anything. That's why there are millions upon millions of gods in Hinduism. Uh, Islam. Go ahead. Don't we kind of do that? Well, we just don't call it Buddhism. <laughs> that's Hinduism, but it's also Buddhism too. And they're both from the same part of the world. The, most of the southern part of the, of the Asian subcontinent. And so, yeah, do they, do they have they, like histories that they kind of come about around the same time? They or? do have like histories. Yeah, they're, they're as old as Judaism. They're as old as the Old Testament. And so they are like perfect for a, a, having a religious veneer in a secular society because you can make it whatever you want. And that ultimately is what secularism is too, uh, where you become your own God. You develop your own totem of beliefs and then you live by those. And that's Buddhism, and that's Hinduism, and that's secular humanism. So all these isms seem to dovetail together. The only one that would really counter is Christianity and Islam. Uh, because you believe in holy books and believe that your beliefs and your deeds are to match up together. And it's ascribed from the outside in, not from the inside out, which is what the other ones believe. So Islam and Judaism have similar beginnings. Uh, you know, somewhat like they have a history. Can you kind of talk about that? Because I know we've heard a lot, like you mentioned yesterday, uh, we worship the same God, Allah is just their version, and how they've tried to kind of perpetuate that idea that it's the same thing, but really isn't. Right. So when you have, 
you know, Abraham and, and all those offshoots. Like, at what point did it branch off? Did Muslim, Islam, do they believe, like you mentioned, they believed Adam and Eve were Muslim. So how did those two beliefs correlate and then branch off? Do you want to address that, Linda? You want me to? Okay. <laughs> well, so when you meet a Muslim, one of the first things they'll say to you if they know you're a Christian or you identify yourself as one, a lot of times the first thing they'll say is, oh, we worship the same God. And I used to think that. When we went to Pakistan, I thought that. And that's because I had not read the Quran through. That's their holy book. It's a little shorter than the New Testament. Um, I had really not had any in-depth conversations with any Muslims. And so when I read the Quran through the first time, I and I read the Bible through every year, uh, Genesis to Revelation. I, I love reading the Bible. Um, I feel especially as a missionary, you know, and as a pastor before that, my number one job is to know the Bible you know, and to communicate the Bible. But that's true for every Christian. I believe that's true for all of you. I mean, 10 minutes a day, you can read through the Bible in 365 days. So I did the same thing with the Quran. I read it and I began to think, wait a minute, this Allah, which if you and I were to worship in a Christian church in Jordan, in Egypt, in any place in the Middle East, uh, if we could read the Arabic Bible, we would see the word Allah all over it. Allah, Allah is just the Arabic name for God. Like the word God, it's actually a Germanic derivative uh, of, a, of the supreme God, but we've incorporated in our language to mean like the God of the Bible. So here's the thing. When I read the Quran, I thought, wait a minute, this, this Allah, this God is very different than the biblical God. His nature, his character, his intimacy is nowhere near the God of the Bible, even from the Old Testament through the New Testament. And I thought, you know, this is not the same Allah. This is not really the same God. Like if you were to read uh, the Book of Mormon, because Mormons will say, oh, yes, the Bible's the word of God. But so is the Book of Mormon that Joseph Smith said he translated from gold plates. So is the doctrines and covenants that he said that he translated. So the Jesus, though, of that Book of Mormon and doctrines and covenants is not the same Jesus of the Bible. Like for Jehovah's Witness, they have a New Testament called the New World Translation. It's not the same Jesus. Jesus in that translation of the Bible, which is an errant translation, it's not from the original Greek, is Jesus is an angel. He's not the son of God. So I began thinking, wait a minute, you know, I, when my Muslim friend or acquaintance says that, I'm not going to jump down his or her throat and say, no, he's not, because I don't want to do that. It's not time for that. And plus, it doesn't build a relationship to do that. I'll just listen and let it roll. And then when they begin to read the scriptures, that's what's the amazing thing, uh, particularly with Muslims, when they begin to read the Bible, they begin to see God in a different way. They begin to see God is really a God of love. Because in Islam, uh, a lot of Muslims will say that Allah is as close as your jugular vein. But you can't have a personal relationship with him. Not even the prophet Muhammad had a personal relationship. But when they start reading the Bible, all of a sudden, wait, this God of this holy book, he's so intimate, he's so personal, he communicates so clearly. And, and it's a powerful, because the Bible is also the only inspired book in the world. So there's happening, something happening by the Spirit when Muslims read the Bible, or people of any other religion, I believe, reads the Bible as well. 
because those are inspired words, and all the more reason why it's important for us to really know our holy book. Do you want to add something, Lynn? I think, I think um, just just the difference with Islam is that Muslims Muslims believe in a lot of, I guess, for the sake of what they call them, you know, Old Testament prophets. They're not all prophets, but Old Testament characters. Um, so for them, you know, for them, you know, Islam started in 610 with the advent of the Quran, the first verses of the Quran, but Muslims believe that Allah created, he was the creator, and all of, and, and all of the books that he delivered through different means to people on earth like Moses and Adam and even Enoch, and you know, there are different um, Old Testament figures that many of the Old Testament figures that we know well, Muslims know well too, but their, their narratives are counterfeited and they're twisted, they're changed, right? So Jesus um, is, I mean, all of those are Muslim prophets. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he was also a Muslim prophet, right? They believe that when humans are born, they're born Muslim. They don't believe in the doctrine of original sin. And so, you know, uh, it, it's, um, it's just whacked out that way. And the thing is that there's so many things that a Muslim can tell you that make you feel like he or she might really be kind of Christian. Like, well, this Islam thing, that sounds pretty much like what I believe, right? There's Jesus. They got this Isa who is our Jesus, but he's not our Jesus. The Isa of the Quran is completely different from the Jesus of the Bible. Muslims don't believe in, you know, in, in Christ's death. They believe that um, when Christ was going to the cross, that um, Allah just just magically substituted someone else, put someone else on the cross in his stead, took Jesus up to wherever it is that Allah is. <laughs> I mean, we don't, I don't call it heaven. Um, Muslims have their own paradise, but, you know, he brought, took him up to himself, and he's going to bring him down again in the end times, and Jesus is going to be part of what makes the whole world Muslim before Judgment Day. Mm. Like, you know, the eschatology, everything's different. But initially, you just kind of get the feeling that, wow, you know, all these bridges, all these things that we have in common, all these prophets that are the same, they believe, you know, they're supposed to read the Torah and the Psalms and, and, and the Gospels in the New Testament. Yeah, yeah, you know, well, that's all good, but really it's not all good because, you know, they've counterfeited the whole thing. And so it's just important to know, you know, you've got you to gotta know who Jesus is yeah. and, um, and, and live into Jesus. And I know that we're not talking about this right now, but you got these conversation starters that we put on your chairs. This is just something like, I mean, they're great for any kind of starting a spiritual conversation with anybody who's, you know, you're just trying to share faith with eventually or even like right now. But Muslims will often say, because they're just curious, but also sometimes they're looking for a debate. And they'll say, um, so what do you think about the Prophet Muhammad? Mm. Right? And so you, know, you don't go there. You say, you know, I know that he's your, your prophet, and I, I respect that. I don't know a whole lot of, about your prophet, but can I talk about Jesus? I know a whole lot about him. Mm. You know, kind of switch the, switch the conversation so that you're not um, entering into that territory that that might classify you as a blasphemer and might cause problems for your relationship then and down the road. Um, yeah, but, you know, just the essence of the difference of the religions, there's, there's just this, you know, this their veneer that it's the reason a lot of Christian girls marry Muslim guys because they don't get it. They don't realize, they don't know enough about Islam to know that this is, this is a veneer that makes you think 
that they're more like you in that way, and they're just they, they couldn't be more different. Yeah, I think it's important not to argue with people from other religions. Find out what they believe, and then again, as I said earlier, you earn the right to be able to talk about what you believe. And as Linda said, well, what do you think about your Prophet Muhammad? I really don't know. Simply said that I always try to focus in on Jesus, um, the holy, the Scriptures, and the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer. Um, I stay away from Muhammad. I stay away from Islam. I stay away from the Quran because if you become critical of any one of those three then you end up putting bricks in the wall. Yeah, yeah. And the important thing is, you don't want to talk to them more about Islam. You want to talk to them about the truth of the gospel. So, share your testimony with them, how you came to faith, how it transformed your life. You know, you're a living testimony to the power of God yourself. Um, Asking them, you know, at the end of the conversation, hey, you know, there's a number of things we haven't agreed on today, but, you know, I do believe in the power of prayer Mm. And I'd like to pray for you, and I'd like to pray in the name of Jesus. Is there anything happening in your life, your family's life? And I've had virtually no Muslims ever turn me down. The only Muslims that have turned me down when I've asked to pray for them are American converts to Islam. They're they're like radicals. Um, But that's been just a few. I've done this inside of mosques all over the world. And Muslims, yes, please pray. And I'll pray in the name of Jesus. Uh, I used to pray for government officials when I would work with them in the government of Pakistan, the Register Teen Challenge, and God would answer prayer, and they would begin seeing me like a person of power, and they would give me all kinds of favor <laughs> because yeah. God had answered prayer. So just always put the 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 kind, the loving, the, the respectful, and and putting the things of Scripture of the, of Jesus. And prayer first. And it's amazing what God will do with that. It changes their heart. You're loving them. Yeah. You're loving them. And you want to love them. That's what we're all about. That's on, how we love On that people. note real quick. Are there two or three pretty common approaches that a Muslim may take with you in regards to conversational that where they might challenge your faith? Is there a common area where they're like, well, why do you believe this? Or why do you believe that? And how do you uh, stand on God's word with those? How do you, I don't want to say combat, but respond. And I don't know if there's, if there's a typical, like, oh, they're always going to ask you this, this or that question. And how do you typically respond to that as a believer? Um, I mean, there are, there are things that um, Muslims will bring up. There's always the issue of the Trinity because Muslims believe in one God. They don't understand that we also believe in one God, just, you know, three essences, like one person. I mean, one God, but three personhoods in that God. They don't, they don't understand that. So they'll, they'll try to, they'll try to um, sometimes become argumentative in that sense. Um, they will always accuse Christians of, um, of, uh, of, of, of confusing the text, like of, of, um, mark the word that I'm looking for. Um, they like, um, that they tell us, they, they, they tell us that we have, no, they tell us that we have changed the scriptures, like that what Allah sent to the prophets of old, like what we learned through Noah and Adam and Enoch and all these prophets that, Isaiah, Jeremiah, I mean, so many prophets that, that the Lord spoke through early on, they believe that we have changed the truth of Scripture. 
right? And so they, that's why the canon of our scripture isn't so valid anymore. And aside from that, they believe that the Quran is the final revelation. So anything that the Quran says abrogates or let's say supersedes takes the place of whatever we might read in scripture. So if there are contradictions, then, um, then that's, uh, then, then that's, um, that mean that they that's what they accuse us of i mean in reality we could accuse them of that we could talk about how long it took for the quran to be put together and how many you know changes that went through i mean you you know i mean then that's just the kind of conversation that if you're into apologetics and you want to you know you want to go to the wall on those pieces and you know for that thing then then you need to learn apologetics because those can be some very very difficult conversations i mean we have a genius on on our team at Global Initiative. Before he came to us, he was studying the the origins of the university, chief mechanical engineer at Fermilab. Like this guy has a photographic memory. He can tell you stuff about creation and blah, blah, everything. He knows a lot about Islam too. He spends, he spends a whole lot of time doing apologetics because he has the kind of mind that, you know, could debate on a, on a broad scale. You don't want to get into those kinds of debate sorts of situations. There's, they're just kind of not, not winnable. See, here's the thing. Here's, here's, here's what we, here's what we focus on. It's the love of Jesus. I mean, Muslims will tell you people who have, have, have become Christians after being uh, Muslims, Muslim background believers or believers of a Muslim uh, background, we call them. Um, they'll say, you know, what drew me was the love of Jesus. And here's the thing. Um, Muslims believe that, and you know, the Quran says oh, there are 99 names of Allah. Really, there's just, there's, they say that there are 99 names, but really there are so many names we could never know them all. Like humanly, we can't know God. But they have approved of these 99 names. And, you know, you see that they, they have these prayer beads that they run through. Well, they're just going through the 99 names of gods. And they earn credit to the scale of their good and bad deeds for Judgment Day. Their, their deeds are going to be measured. That's how they either make it to paradise or don't. And, and no Muslim knows that his or her deeds are going to be val- valuable enough. Like, nobody has the assurance of paradise in Islam. But, you know, the, the, one, the one, so there is one word among those 99 names of God that is anything close to the word love. And it's the word wadud. And wadud in Arabic is, is the kind of love that a master has or a teacher has for a student who obeys and does good deeds. Like it's Allah who approves of your deeds. That's how he loves you. But it's not an intimate love like, lo, you know, I, I, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you always kind of a love. It's not the love that gets you through hard times. Muslims have none of that. So there's a, and, and, and you know, in Islam, because they have none of that, they resort to cultic practices, to folk Islamic practices, because they don't have that, that, that intimacy, that, that's what you focus in on in your conversations with Muslims. I've never really been into a hot debate or conversation with a Muslim. We just, they don't, I mean, my friends haven't gone there really. Um, but we, but, but, you know, with Muslims, conversations turn spiritually, spiritual very often. But trust me, they're the kind of spiritual you can manage. Because if you walk with Jesus, then you can, you, you have an answer. Like you can, you can be what Jesus wants you to, and, and he'll, and he'll help you with your words. Sometimes Mark will even say, wow, I didn't know what that came from, but wow, I did pretty good, didn't I? Because you, you don't always know what they're going to ask, or you don't always know what you're going to answer, but but you can rely on the Lord to help you. 
and um, enterprised by the ways that the Lord has opened the doors for these sort of spiritual conversations to happen with Muslims. They happen, we, I have more conversations with Muslim friends than I ever do with like secular friends here in the United States. Because Muslims want to talk about those kind of things. They're, they're inherently, they're, they're seekers, kind of. You know what I mean? They want to please Allah. And in their realm of things, well, you know, the love of God is super attractive. I don't know if we're taking it too far, yeah. but it's like I was sharing with the seminar yesterday. I've never had a Muslim come to faith because all of a sudden they believed in the Trinity. Or you want an argument. Or you want an argument. You know, the Apostle Paul talks about we don't argue because if we argue, it devoids the cross of its power. So that's really us trying to convert somebody rather than letting the Holy Spirit do it. God doesn't need us to argue people into the kingdom of God. Uh, I remember one time I was in England and there was a mela, which is a celebration. And there was this group of fundamentalists, I mean, radical fundamentalists, and they had a booth. So I went up to the booth and I started talking to them and I said, is it true that if a Muslim converts, I knew the answer to the question, but I asked it anyway. I said, is it true if a Muslim converts to any other faith, let's say they become a Christian, that they're to be put to death? And these were two younger guys. I mean, I was 33 then. And they looked at each other and then they turned around and they got an older guy to come. And he says, could you ask him this question? So I asked him this question and he said, well, yes, we do believe that. I said, why do you have to take God's judgment into your own hands? I thought you said that Islam is a religion of peace and tolerance. That doesn't sound very peaceful or tolerant to me. And, you know, when I did that, I kind of felt like I was picking a fight. And I, I never did that again. I was, I was just kind of maybe a little bit in the flesh and wanting to get into a bit of a, <laughs> a scuffle. And, um, and, and so... The, the five, the four primary reasons, a survey was done with 700 Muslims from all over the world, why they came to embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord. And these are the order in which these Muslims said, here's why I came to faith. Yeah, they came to faith, they left Islam, became followers of Jesus. The number one reason given was they had a relationship with a Christian. So... Luke 10, 2, you know, the harvest is ready, the workers are few. So get into the harvest field. Just develop a friendship, a, a relationship with man to man, woman to woman. Don't cross genders. Then secondly, the second most given reason was they were given a Bible in their language. Again, the inspiration of the word of God. So find out what their first language is and give them a Bible. If it's if they're Pakistani, they could maybe have five different languages. They may say it's Baluchi. They may say it's Punjabi. They may say it's Saraiki. Uh, but chances are they're going to say it's Urdu. But, but then get them a nice Bible. Um, and don't write in it, you know, uh, from Mark to Muhammad or anything like that. Just give it to them pristine. And then the third most given reason was signs, wonders, and miracles. So make the most of every opportunity when you meet a Muslim to ask them, is there any need in your life or your family's life that we could pray about? And when God answers prayer, that is what stirs a Muslim more than anything else because Islam is a powerless religion. And then the fourth most given reason was coming to understand that God is a God of love. We talked about that earlier. 
Because the God of the Quran is very transcendent. He's very distant. He's not intimate like the Bible, the God of the Bible. <clears throat> and then the fifth reason given was there's great disillusionment with Islam, especially with younger people and seeing the violence that what's been done in the name of Islam. So they're very savvy into the internet and globalization has really impacted the way they see the world and it's caused them to have a shaking of their faith. So those are the top five reasons, but none of them involve, is Jesus the son of God? Is, do you guys worship three gods? You know, I think that's just a distraction. That's good. You mentioned uh, yesterday in the seminar that you've read the Quran cover to cover twice at least. Uh, one of the questions that was just asked is, if a believer was interested in reading the Quran, what should they do to prepare for that? Well, I think first and foremost, you know, you, you want to have a, a good, whether you read the Quran or not, you want to have a good, strong devotional life. Yeah. I'm, like I said, I mean, reading through the Bible every year, I, I think that's just really important. Because um, it doesn't take that much time, but it's amazing how Scripture confirms itself as you read it. Like I like reading a, a passage of the Old Testament, passages of the New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs. And you go through the Psalms several times, you go through the Proverbs even more than that. But you just really see how the Bible reinforces itself when you read it that way. And so having a strong devotional life, a strong prayer life, uh, making sure you're part of the body of Christ and you're functioning the gifts of the Spirit in this local church. Um, and then in reading the Quran, I mean, no demons are going to jump out of it and bite you or fill you or anything like that. But reading it, really, it's a very boring book. And like the Bible isn't in chronological order. You can buy a chronological Bible and read it through chronologically uh, from Genesis to Revelation. The Quran isn't chronological either. There's a website that's called wikiislam.net. Wikiislam.net. And you can actually, I think it was produced by former Muslims. And they don't say who they are who do this website, but they have a Quran. And you can read the Quran in chronological order. And the Quran is broken into two different parts. One is the Meccan chapters, and the other one is the Medina chapters. And supposedly when the revelations came to Muhammad in the Mecca chapters, which were like the first half, he was a persecuted minority. But then he runs to Medina for his safety, and Islam begins to take hold there. And then a lot of the revelations change and even counter the revelations that were given before in Mecca. And you begin to read this, and you read what a local book it is. Well, most Muslims have never read the Quran, and they, they've never read it. So I like to use it. Um, yes, I can learn what they what the Quran says and so forth, but I like to use it as a tool to say to them, you know, I've, I've read my holy book. Uh, would you read mine? Because I, I like to make judgments out of things that I know, not what somebody tells me. And so, you know, I'd like for you to read my holy book, and maybe start them with the New Testament, maybe the Gospel of John, and say, why don't you read my holy book and tell me what you think? And it's going to fascinate them. Um, you know, they're often told that, that God had sex with Mary, and that's how Jesus was born. Um, well? Yeah, it's, I mean, there's so many, mis so many, so many things that they, they, they have been told that we believe that are wrong. That are you know, wrong. Like, we don't believe yeah. those things, right? But... They don't typically become part of a conversation yeah. that you have. So I say, well, let's read, let's read the Matthew and let's read the Luke narrative of Jesus' conception and show me where God's having sex with Mary. Well, it gets them into the Bible, you know. So, um, 
Yeah, there are all kinds of ways that Muslims are coming to faith today. Uh, besides the Quran, are there other literature that you would suggest to read? We were talking about this earlier. Yeah, um, Nabil Qureshi, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Yeah. Oh, that's a great one, yeah. yeah. Nabil yeah. Qureshi, Seeking Allah, Finding he Jesus. He just recently passed away, didn't he? Cancer? Yeah, he died of yeah. stomach cancer. Yes, Young tragically. Man. But he, um, and he's written two other books too. One God, and he wrote a book that's, I think the title of that book is Jihad. I've, I've read all three of them. Emily, but can he, you post those books later on the anchor page for us? Yeah, Nabil Qureshi. So he, Nabil Qureshi is an Ahmadiyya Muslim, a devout Muslim who was, um, who had a, a, a Christian friend who was a devout Christian. They both sort of set out to, to defend their own faiths, Nabil wanted to prove to this Christian person that, you know, that, that Islam is the right path. And he winds up in his seeking of Allah um, to find just all the errors of Islam's ways. And so he has just such an amazing way of pointing those out to you in, in ways that you understand. It's a bit academic, um, but, it's, but, but, but it's also, I mean, you'll get it. It's just so, so good. Rich stuff. Real quick, just because I know we're running close on time. Um, a lot of our young adults are educators. They're, they're in schools. And um, how do you then, when you encounter Muslim youth, um, now, now you're talking maybe even a different level versus talking to an adult male or an adult female. You're talking to a teenager. And I know even in my own experience when, when I've been to England and I've been to some of the schools and there was a stark difference between the Muslim kids and some of the other kids, the, the kids never had an issue coming and talking to me. And so they, they don't see any cultural barriers. The girls would talk to me, the boys would talk to me, everybody. They just love that I had an American accent. So how do we um, minister to Muslim youth who sometimes are the ones opening the door themselves should we worry about, you know, the combative aspects with their parents? Should we worry about what we might be risking them when it comes to their families? Like, how do we approach that? Uh, because, like you said earlier, God is the one who placed us in those schools at this time. And so how do we then honor that position that God has placed us in and do well with that? I would, I would say, so if you're talking about the public school system... I would say, I mean, you know the value of having relationships with a student's parents. So you're going to know a whole lot about that student by knowing that student's parents. Communicate with your student's parents. And I mean, in a real positive way, like, like establish, establish um, you know, I mean, just like we say, just establish respectful, honorific uh, relationships with them. Be careful not to do things that, you know, I, I don't want you to be too careful, but you know, we just, we can get really um, bogged down by that. But but be honorific and be respectful and let them know that you really care about their child and they are really going to appreciate that. The role of a teacher in Islam is a very valued, valued one. And it's really one of the few roles that women are allowed to have even in Islam. So they value their teachers and they're going to value you and they're going to know that, that their kids are safe with you. And, um, you know, you in a public school system are probably not going to have a whole lot of opportunity to talk about the things of Christ. Unless your student pulls you aside and asks you, I mean, and it's just like with any other kid that you're going to be outreaching to and loving them like Jesus does. These are, these are, um, um, you know, I'll tell you this, and even for in Christian school systems, and not so much like upper age level Christian school systems, but Muslims will seek out Christian daycare centers and Christian preschools to put their kids in because 
because they know that we have similar moral values. And they know, they, they trust for the most part that their kids are going to be safe in those contexts. So build on that sense of trust. And, um, you know, you're, you're not going to be, I, I don't personally believe that you'll be having a whole lot of spiritual kinds of interactions, like with, you know, like by conversations about the Bible and that kind of thing, unless, you know, say you were, you know, I, you know, I mean, there, there, there would be. There could be opportunities, but I'm saying that probably your best influence is going to be your relationship with their parents and how you treat that child in class. And you might have situations, I will say this, I mean, just let me just say this. So, uh, you know, there are things too that, that you as teachers and social workers and whatever, you just need to be on a lookout for with your mm-hmm. Muslim students, especially your girls. Um, sometimes, now you don't want to assume this, most Muslim parents love their kids just like our parents do, but sometimes there is abuse that you might be able to discern and, you know, and, and figure out just like you would any other kid in your class. Like you're, you're bound to report those things, but especially in the lives of Muslim girls for um, very fundamental sort of um, very conservative families, you might notice that these girls are... Um, are, well, maybe maybe a girl is gone for quite a while, right? Sometimes they're working on marriages and they're sending them back home and they're getting married to Muslim men and then they're bringing them back and sticking them back in the public school system. I mean, so there are some, some really, um, really uh, life-altering things that happen in the lives of Muslim girls, especially mm-hmm. in public school system that have to do not so much with what's going on in the public school, like where she is, but what's going on at home as she's becoming an adolescent and going through some important sort of, um, uh, you know, life cycle adjustments, even in her own family and culture. And if you can, if you can, if you can hone in on those, like if you, if you discern that a girl is struggling, don't just let her sit there and struggle. But you're, I mean, I know that in public school systems, you know, you don't put your arms around her, but you know, in every way that you know how, put your arms around her Mm -hmm. and let her know that she's valued, she's cared for, she's loved, that she's, that she's got gifts and talents that, that, um, you know, um, and, and Muslims understand the language of, you know, that, of, of God, kind of. Mm-hmm. So, so just be on the lookout for those things because, um, because those do exist in our public school systems. And more and more, I think that public school systems are beginning to understand that they need to educate their teachers for some of these changes that their Muslim girls especially go through. Yeah. Just a couple more questions. And I was thinking about this earlier. But you talked about some of the, the, you know, they put them in Christian daycares because some of the shared moral values. Why do you feel that the world tends to really be aggressive towards Christianity when it comes to LGBTQ things or some of the transgender stuff? Uh, And again, I just found the humor in it when, you know, I'm seeing over the week um, gays for Palestine and I'm like, you do, you do realize you can't. You can't be gay in Palestine. Like, no, it's, if you want their government would, you know. And so uh, why do you think uh, that the Muslim or the Islam, Islamic religion doesn't tend to be as attacked on a public forum as much as Christian or even Jewish, uh, Israeli aspects? I can tell you just because I'm pretty connected with the social media aspect of Muslim girls and stuff that's going on, probably a little bit more than Mark at this point. Um, so... Um, you know, 
progressive Muslims are Muslims that have come from Muslim backgrounds and they're in the United States. They might be fundamentalists with an agenda or they could be young people who are just trying to find their way. And so they have to somehow adapt their Islamic beliefs to fit into the systems that they live in because they need to fit right and and so there's this there's this there's this element of progressive islam where you have where you have an islam in america that looks very different from the islam in pakistan and jordan and you know um in in, in african ca- countries right you you um and and you think well well wow that's like a really reformed islam and that should be that's like a really good thing right but it's really not a very good thing because the way that they're identifying this is a very satanic thing this is a very demonic thing because the way that they're growing their influence is by attaching themselves to elements of you know the 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 the, um, the woke trends that are out there so that's how they're tying themselves into the lgbtq agendas things that would never be allowed in their countries i mean we've lived in countries where they'll hang a person who I mean, <laughs> you know, so all of that stuff goes on behind closed doors. Oh my goodness, so many. <laughs> you know, I mean, when we, this is okay. When we first went to Pakistan, we were being tutored by a couple in England. We had some months in England while we were waiting for our visas. And, you know, I, I, I lived in Latin America and I knew that, you know, Latin Americans watch out for their girls, right? And so, and so Mark and I are just also kind of assuming, well, well, watch, watch out for your two girls, you know, in, in a sort of, sort of the machismo kind of culture that we were going to, I mean, because it's very similar um, in Pakistan and, and, um, and they actually corrected us and they said, yeah, you need to watch out for your girls, but you really need to watch out for your son. We learned through them and then by personal experience that in the country where we lived, most men had their first sexual encounter with a young boy. Because there is so much gender segregation. It's like perversion the other way. It's the way Satan has sort of just shifted, you know, the aspects of our sexuality to make them shameful. And, and, and a thing that, you know, Muslims are, you know, you're not even supposed to talk to a girl or, or in any way. I mean, these, 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 um, these, these walls that have been built are so destructive to, to the sexuality that these young Muslims grow up in. Um, and, and we did have an incidence with our son where, um, he was, um, where, where there were two men present and one of the men tried to kiss him in an inappropriate way when he was about five and the other man reported him to us. He stopped him. Yeah. I mean, so nothing happened to Carl, although Carl knew that it was about to happen, and, um, and he stopped him, and then he went and told our landlord. We lived in the same house with our landlord, and he told, he, he actually told, no, he told us, and then Mark went to the landlord. Yeah. yeah so, uh, came into the house, and he was five, yeah, and I could tell he was angry. He did a little bit. And I said, uh, what, what, what are you angry about? And he said, um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Mr. Abdul tried to kiss me. I said, what? And I said, did he? And he said, no, Mr. Safras, who was our guard, stopped him. I said, okay. So he didn't kiss you? No. 
So my landlord and his family, he was a retired naval commander, lived upstairs. So I immediately went to his door. And we always had a very good relationship. And he answers the door. Oh, he goes, Mr. Mark, he goes, how are you? And I said, I'm not good. And he said, what's wrong? I said, I need to talk to you about something. So we went upstairs, and I told him what happened. And his face just went red with anger. I said, I don't know how it is in your culture, but in my culture and in my faith, this is totally unacceptable. He says, this is unacceptable. I'll do with it immediately. And he went down and fired the guy, and the guy left. Uh, but thankfully, Mr. Savras, um, you know, was a friend of Carl, and he was the guard, and he, he kept Carl from, from experiencing, you know, something that would have been very traumatic. Part of me kind of wishes Carl went back there during his Special Forces days <laughs> and found the man. <laughs> just, and you just will never know about it. <laughs> Lamentably, though, friends, I mean, lamentably, it's rampant, right? So, um, uh, so also the issue with pornography is very pervasive in those countries. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, uh, yeah, you know, we, we saw, we saw like, we had, so we saw like Talib types, like Taliban types in our community. I mean, there were some real fundies about fundamentalists where we lived and, but you would often see them in the company with young boys. I mean, you knew what was going on. If you if you want to learn about Islamic culture, Muslims have um, have developed a real niche in the literature realm, and I would recommend that you read a couple of books. Uh, I mean, even if it's fiction, it's based on truth. Like, you'll have these truth fiction kinds of books. So, one that I would uh, recommend would be Kite Runner. It was really popular when yeah. we were younger, yeah. but this was written by an Afghan author, and it's a story that features some of these sensuality issues in Afghan culture. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a fiction book, but it's an informative book. And then, after that, he wrote a book called A Thousand Splendid Sons, and you want to write these down. I mean, these are really good books, A Thousand Splendid Sons, and that features the aspect of polygamy when a man takes a second wife and what happens when a, in a Muslim home when, when that goes on. Then likewise, I would recommend this book to you, um, especially you girls. Um, it's called um, Butterfly Mosque. It's written by Willow Wilson. Willow Wilson is a girl who became a Muslim in the States and decided to go to Egypt and learn more about her newfound faith. Um, she when I read that book, I mean, I, I, it was spine chilling. Like I felt like, wow, she would have made a great missionary mm. because the cross cultural things that you get to learn and identify with in that book are amazing. And, and they're positive in a big way, but, um, but remember that she's coming in from a Muslim perspective. So she falls in love with a guy in Egypt and, and they get married. It's a love marriage, which is very unusual. So you get to see kind of how that happens. And then she comes back to the United States and she's actually the author behind uh, Marvel Comics and Disney's recent production of Kamala Khan, the superhero, right? Miss right? Marvel. Miss Marvel. She, Miss Marvel, so Kamala Khan, and Kamala Khan in the story, she's a Pakistani girl who comes to the States with her Muslim family. She immigrates. And, um, and it actually, um, you know, is, is sort of, it shows you the struggles that immigrants go through, especially Muslim immigrants. So she comes to the United States, and she 
One of the things is that she has this close friendship with a boy, which is completely inappropriate. That couldn't happen in another country. Um, and she has this relationship platonic with a boy. And, but she's an adolescent growing up. And then all of a sudden, and, and she has a fundamentalist brother who's always watching to see what she does. And then he reports them to mom and dad and he reports them to the, to the leader of the mosque. And the leader of the mosque is there and he gets involved. But in, in, uh, you know, in, this, in these comics and in these productions, so she's a Muslim girl, ironically a girl. This would never happen to a girl in, you know, in a fundamentalist uh, Muslim literary context. But she gets these superpowers where she becomes a help to people in need. And it's, I mean, it's, 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 it, it gets into the real bizarro you know, if you've, if you've read the comics, you know. Um, but in the, in the it, it puts a face on Islam that's so culturally, it's educational. Because you'll be able to see what happens when her, when her older brother sees her sitting with this boy in a restaurant. Like they think they're, they're in private. And they weren't even doing anything wrong. But, you know, the things that she goes through and how the family manages it. So I would recommend that you, you know... Just be acquainted with some of these Muslim authors and um, uh, especially if you are involved in the public school system so that you can kind of see the Islam and be aware of the Islam that your kids are experiencing in those contexts. Um, I would... Uh, there, there, there are. There's a lot out there, and in Chicago, actually, in Chicago, is it, they've the what what they call themselves the mipsters. They are Muslim hipsters who are latching on to the aspect of using the arts to give Islam a favorable face in the West. Mm. And I'm I'm telling you, you might be attracted to some of their stuff. It is there's a lot of talent, but the message is a deceptive one. Yeah. But this is what your Muslim kids and your public schools here are probably becoming very interested in. I don't know. It's just, you know, a thing that you might might like to check out. Okay. Well, uh, it's a little bit past nine already, so we want to be respectful, obviously, of your time and respectful of everyone else's time. Uh, I will leave it open for one more question. If anybody has a question, you can shout it out. If not, I'll, I'll get ready to wrap things up just so we can make sure everyone got a chance. No? Okay, perfect. Uh, my last question then, and, and just kind of a way to carry us out, um, specifically to this generation, right? We got mostly 18 to 30-somethings. Um, what's their role in all this when it comes to reaching Muslims? Obviously, we have a mosque up the street. Uh, many of them work with people that are Muslim. Many of them work with people of all different kinds of faiths, like you mentioned, Buddhist, Hindu, things like that. And I think we've gotten culturally to a place where um, you know, it's like, well, you have your religion, I have mine, and let's just all agree to be kumbaya with it. Um, so what's, what's their task? What's their mandate as believers going forward? I think like in Acts chapter 4, you know, when uh, Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, you know, they clearly define to the Sanhedrin that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. I think it's important because of the word tolerance that has been so misused that everybody else can be tolerant, but if we hold to what we believe, we're intolerant. But yet I have to believe what you believe, though I disagree with it, so that you will define me as tolerant. That's intolerance. I mean, if you want to believe what you want to believe, this is American society. If you believe what you want to believe, believe it. 
But that doesn't mean that I think that you're intolerant, nor am I intolerant. You should think that I'm intolerant. I think it's important for us to make sure that we are compassionate without compromise, that we thoroughly understand that Jesus is the only way. He is the truth. He is the life. Uh, Bishop Michael Naziri is a bishop of the Anglican Church in England, and he's a very conservative Christian, Pakistani in background. His father left Islam, became a Christian. He went to a gathering of the World Council of Churches one time, and a man spoke, and the message that he spoke was, is Jesus the only way? Yes, no, maybe. And in his message to the World Council of Churches, he said, yes, he is. No, he isn't. Maybe he is. Michael Naziri afterwards went up to this man and said, if what you said is true, then my family has gone through a tremendous amount of suffering because we accepted Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, and we were greatly persecuted for it. So I believe that what your generation needs to do is to be firm in the orthodox teachings of Scripture, that what the Bible says is, if you believe it's the Word of God, is God's inspired Word. So reading that and living into that, you know, with your belief system and your deeds, I think then you reach out with compassion and without compromise. So bring unsaved people into your life. Don't let yourself settle into a Christian ghetto. I mean, yes, have fellowship with one another, but and, and this is for this time, but when you leave this place, be thinking about, especially if you're in the world of education, how can I invite people, maybe fellow teachers, maybe some of the administration, other per- members of the staff, maybe the janitorial staff, how can I invite them into my life, into my home? You know, start practicing hospitality. How can I invite them into my home uh, to be able to express love to them, uh, get into a more intimate setting in the sense of being able to have more candid, clear, honest conversations, and then being open then to going into their home as well? Of course, if you're not married, then you may have to think about the gender issue and that kind of thing. But be compassionate without compromise and take the initiative in getting into the lives of unsaved people, especially people, like I've said, in these four main areas that I see make up most of the world population, uh, Buddhists, Muslim, Hindus, secular humanists. I mean, that makes the majority of the world, if you include Christians, that basically makes up the entire world. So... Take the initiative in doing that. Be thinking about how you can intentionally do it. Be praying about it. Uh, Step out. You know, give it a try. See where you succeed. What works? What doesn't work? If if you just do nothing, then nothing is the result. Yeah. But if you do something and something doesn't work quite right, okay, learn from that. All right, let's let's rework this and let's keep doing it because we have to get into the harvest field. I mean, we have to. The problem is not the unsaved. The problem is us as the church not getting into the harvest field. We can't expect them to come to us. We're responsible to go to them. Amen. And that's what I was saying this morning in the message. Pray, be filled with the Holy Spirit, be empowered. Again, let yourself be steeped in the word of God. Memorize it when you can. Uh, listen to it. I love my daily audio Bible. We were listening to uh, that app today driving here. <clears throat> I hear things when I hear the word read 
verbally that sometimes I miss when I'm reading. But take the initiative yourself. You know, put yourself out there. Don't be afraid. Um, you will make a whole bunch of new friends. I always told my kids when they went into different contexts around the world, hey, Proverbs says, if you want friends, be friendly. Yeah. If you don't want friends, then don't be friendly. Yeah. But your whole world will open up to people that will bring a lot into your life. But above all, you're bringing a lot into their life too. Amen. Thank you, guys. Can you give it up real quick for the Hossfelds?